In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, we uh, had spoken last time, uh, continuing speaking about the theological school of Alexandria um, in the Coptic Orthodox history. Um, and there were some famous characters that I wanted to mention um, uh, in this period of time, during the time of great persecution, um, where there were certain people, and we spoke about the emperors, some emperors that were um, famous at the time that were the causes of much of the persecution. There are certain characters, I want to mention them by name because we hear them often, just to give you a little background about them. So there was a man whose name was Arius, or sorry, Arianus. Arianus, we read about him a lot in the Synexarian. So if you if you read in the Synexarian, when we're reading um, on Sundays, uh, this man, Arianus, he was a governor um, of, an, of a region called Encina, and he was one of the most cruel rulers um, and he spent so much of his time just seeking to persecute the, ki the, the Christians and the cops. And he was very kind of uh, creative in the way that he would torture uh, the Christians um, and very, very cruel. And so people, he had like a reputation of people who um, would, uh, you know, any of the rulers who wanted to kill or threaten Christians, they would send them to him. Because the, the goal was not just to kill the Christians, the goal was to convert them so that they would offer incense to the idols. That was seen as being like the primary goal um, of the persecution. And it only when that failed, when they were not able to convert someone, um, either through threats or through giving them some kind of bribe to get them to convert, um, to, to, to offer incense to the idols. That's when they would persecute them uh, more and more, and then ultimately they would be killed. Um, this man, and you see on the left here, actually, he is a saint. Um, <laughs> because he at the, at the very end, he ended up becoming um, a Christian himself when he saw the perseverance of the Christians and he saw um, what is it that they um, believed. As the grace of God worked with Saul of Tarsus, he worked within Arianus, converting him into a lamb for the slaughter. While torturing Philemon and Apollonius, Arianus ordered killing them by arrows. One of the arrows reflected back to hit his eye. Philemon told him as he was crying for help to wait until the next day and use dust from their tomb to heal his eye in the Lord Jesus' name. So these saints were being tortured and they would be killed and they would be buried he told them next that tomorrow after we're dead, take some of the dust from our, um, our burial and anoint your eye with it. Put it on your eye in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be healed. And after the two Christians were beheaded, he used the dust and his eye was cured. In sorrow and repentance, he accepted the Christian faith and liberated all the imprisoned Christians. So he turned from being one of the most um, uh, like cruel torturers of Christians he converted to become a Christian and ultimately a martyr himself. Diocletian, he was the emperor, while visiting Alexandria, was agitated when he heard this because Arianus was, again, a very famous figure and one of the kind of the, the, the models of paganism and under the Roman Empire, who was the person who would always be persecuting the Christians. Before traveling to meet Diocletian, he visited the martyr's tomb, and the messengers who were with him heard a voice encouraging him to be martyred. This is about Arianus. Diocletian ordered to bury him alive after tying his arms and legs with iron chains and a millstone to his neck. The Lord Christ sent an angel who brought him out from the pit and took him by the bed of the emperor. So after he was buried alive, 
He was rescued by an angel from the burial, and he was taken to the, 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 the bedroom of the emperor, Diocletian. When Diocletian saw Arianus, he ordered to drown him and the messengers who were converted with sandbags in the sea, and they were martyred in 305 AD. Another famous group um, of martyrs was a group from the city of Thebes, which is an Egyptian city, um, called the Theban Legion. One of the, th the Egyptian legions that had one high repute, they were 6,600 members, so these were all soldiers, okay? Um, its members were Christians and natives of Thebes, which is modern-day Luxor, uh, which was the capital of the ancient Pharaonic Egypt. Um, the leader of this Theban legion is another famous name, St. Maurice, and he was also accompanied by St. Verena. So we hear these names, St. Maurice, St. Verena, um, St. Maurice, he was the leader, a soldier, and St. Verena, she was a nurse. Um, and, and, and eventually, uh, this Theban legion, including St. Maurice and St. Verena, they went to Europe and um, in, this in the country of Switzerland. Um, they have shrines to St. Verena and many things after the name of St. Maurice as well because of the history of these saints in that country. Maximian requested Diocletian to send the legion to quell the rebellion in Gaul. So this legion is a, is a legion of soldiers that was um, under the Roman Empire, but they were Christian. So as a part of this um, rebellion in, in France, in Gaul, this legion was supposed to go and to fight. Upon arrival, Maximian divided them into two groups to encamp on the border of Gaul and Switzerland. On the eve of the battle, Maximian ordered them to pay homage to his god. They unanimously refused to obey his order and declared they were Christians. He therefore or ordered to have them decimated, hoping to intimidate them. You know the word decimated, what literally what decimated means? We use the word to mean like to destroy. Huh? Hmm? We, that's how we use the word, right? To obliterate something. But literally, what decimate means is to destroy one-tenth of it, right? Des, like decimal, the base 10. So to decimate them meant that they killed every tenth soldier, okay? They killed every tenth soldier. So based on this, they, 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 they wrote a letter, okay? Based on this threat, they wrote a letter to the emperor, the Theban legion, and this is what they wrote said, Great Caesar, we are your soldiers, and at the same time we are God's slaves. We owe you our military service, but our prime allegiance we owe to God. From you we receive our daily wages, from him our eternal reward. Great Caesar, we cannot obey any order if it runs counter to God's commands. If your orders coincide with God's commands, we will certainly obey them. If not, we ought to obey God rather than men. For our loyalty to him surpasses all other loyalties. We are not rebels. If we were, we would defend ourselves, for we have our weapons. But we prefer to die upright than to live stained. As Christians, we will serve you, but we will not relinquish our faith in our Lord, and this we openly declare. It's a, a very beautiful letter, right, and in in what they wrote. They said, we are not here to rebel against you. We are not making some political uprising. We are not seeking power for ourselves. We're not even defending ourselves as we are willing to die. But we cannot disobey the commandments of God even in obeying you. We want to obey you and we are your servants. But if what you command us to do is contrary to the commands of God, then we will not obey. 
This is a model of what it means to dissent in a Christian way against um, oppression, against some authority that is, that is ungodly, right? They are not seeking political power. They are just seeking to obey God only. So after receiving this letter, he decimated them again, meaning he killed one-tenth of them again. He ordered a second decimation and once more asked the remnant to accompany him to the temple, but fearlessly they said, we are Christians. Thereupon, Maximian ordered this Roman, uh, his Roman soldiers to wipe out the whole legion. This happened in 303 AD. So this, this legion, which was there to serve the emperor, which traveled from Thebes, okay, from Egypt, all the way to France in order to fight, and they were willing to do so, but they refused to obey what Maximian, the emperor, had told them, um, or, or what Maximian had told them. I don't think he was the emperor yet. Um, uh, because because of their um, because of their belief and their faith in God, this here is an icon of Saint Verena. Um, always because she was a nurse, they show her with this water pitcher, and if you can see there in that bag, she has um, that's actually a comb, because she she taught the people about hygiene and how to 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 maintain their hygiene, and she's very famous for this and her service as a nurse. Um, she was traveling with them. Another famous character. Um, that we read about, another famous martyr. Um, we call him St. Peter, the seal of martyrs. He was the only son who was born in answer to his parents' fervent prayers. He was ordained a deacon at 12 and then a priest at 16. His knowledge, wisdom, and understanding earned for him the surname of Excellent Doctor of Christianity and to be the school's dean. So this is the school of Alexandria, to be the dean of the school of Alexandria. He defeated Sibelius, bishop of Ptolemaeus, who denied the Holy Trinity, considering them as three modes of God's, God's self-manifestation. So there was this man, his name was Sibelius, and his, um, his heresy we call Sibelianism or modalism. And essentially, his belief about the Trinity was that they were all one in the sense that God manifested himself at some times as the Father and manifested himself sometimes as the Son and manifested himself sometimes as the Holy Spirit which we do not believe this. We believe that there are three persons as opposed to just being one person who has three different manifestations. Um, and so this was his heresy, this man Sibelius um, and St. Peter, he stood up against this heresy. St. Peter, he became the 17th successor to St. Mark, the Pope of Alexandria in the year 300 AD. He interpreted the whole Bible and wrote many treatises. His days were full of stress because of persecution by Diocletian and Arianism. Um, again, Diocletian is the Roman emperor. Arianism is another heresy where um, it was the belief that the Lord Jesus Christ was not God. He drew up 14 canons for accepting repentant apostates, respected by the church both in the East and the West. He ordained Arius deacon than priest. This is before his heresy, the, the, the heresy of Arius, who taught that Jesus Christ was not God. But he ended up excommunicating him when he declared his heresy and his fellows because of his teachings against the divinity of Christ. He knew by the Holy Spirit that his disciples, Archelaus and Alexandros, in turn were going to succeed him. He warned them against ever reaccepting Arius in the church. And Diocletian noticed that after so many years of persecutions, the Christians of Egypt had not been exterminated, but rather the converts were increasing. And so th that's one of the effects, actually, of persecution of the church, is the intent of the persecution is to oppress the church and to make the church to diminish and the church 
um, not to continue to grow and thrive. But the effect that the persecution actually had was people would be one to the faith when they see the strength of faith of these martyrs who are willing to die for their faith. More and more people actually would join the church. And you see many examples actually of those who were the persecutors. When they see the faith of those people who they were beheading and killing, they themselves would convert to Christianity. He ordered to arrest and torture the religious leaders, including the Pope. A large crowd gathered at the prison door to liberate Pope Peter. In order to avoid any bloodshed, St. Peter sent secretly to the commander to plan for his martyrdom without killing his people. So St. Peter offered himself to be martyred to avoid the bloodshed of the people. He prayed fervently before his martyrdom and asked God to accept his life as a ransom for his people. And a voice was heard saying, Amen. He was beheaded in 311 AD, which ended that period of persecution. And that's why we call him the seal of the martyrs in the sense that he, that area of very, very severe persecution at that time kind of briefly ended. Um, and so we call him, St. Peter, the seal of the martyrs. After the period of peace, and as we mentioned last time, when Christianity was declared to be a lawful religion by Emperor Constantine, who himself became a Christian, um, there was a desire for um, people who would voluntarily give up their lives for the Lord. Give up, giving, giving up their lives not as martyrs by being killed, but giving up their lives by forsaking all of their possessions and going to live in the wilderness for the for for like voluntarily like as a, as an offering to God and a desire to be with God and not be distracted by all of the things in the world and this became the beginning of the Christian monasticism that ended up spreading to all of the other countries in the world so all the forms of monasticism that exist um, whether it be in the Catholic Church or in other places began here in Egypt okay began in Egypt monasticism is the, the word is an expression that's used for, era, for an eremitical mode of life and used later for cenobitic life. It comes from the Greek word monachos, okay, which is derived from the Greek monos or alone, someone who is alone. There are different forms of monasticism. Um, we're going to speak just briefly about these two main ones. Okay? The eremitical monasticism is the, the solitary where a person will go and to be solitary on their own in the wilderness. The Cenobitic form, which is what we are more used to nowadays, where you have actual monasteries and a group of monks or nuns will live together um, in, in, a, in a community, okay, in these places. That's more of the Cenobitic form. Monasticism as a life of asceticism, made up of solitude, poverty, worship, contemplation, and purity of heart, together with, el with elements of manual labor. It started at the end of the 3rd century in the, the solitary form and developed during the 4th century into the communal form or the Cenobitic form. Monasticism depends on biblical principles, these four principles. The idea of celibacy, which is something that was honored by God, Solitude, in order to be away from the distractions of the world. Actually, the Lord Christ himself went on his own to pray, separated from the world when he went and fasted for 40 days. Poverty, willing, um, a, a, a willing acceptance to give all of your possessions away so that you are not living um, with any money or any possessions. 
obedience, which is submission to a spiritual authority above you. The life of our Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect example because he did these things. He lived celibate. He went in, in isolation and solitude. He was not a wealthy man. He did not, he did not have um, possessions. And he was obedient to the Father himself. Even when in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Lord is um, accepting the crucifixion and accepting that this is his path in obedience to the will of God the Father. Two important facts to keep in mind. The idea of monasticism is not to say that marriage is sinful or that somehow those people who choose a life of monasticism are better or holier than those who choose a life of marriage. Actually, there's a, a famous story in the church about one of the great uh, monks whose name was St. Macarius. St. Macarius, um, at one point in his life, he began to believe and feel that he was like the most righteous man in the world. He began to, f to think this about himself because he was uh, a solitary. He had, he had different, he had so many spiritual children that would look up to him, and he was a very righteous man. So he, he at one point in his life, he believed that he was um, very righteous. And the Lord revealed to him there was actually two women who were living together in the same household. Both of them were married and had children. And that these two women, in the eyes of God, were actually more righteous than him. And he, he took St. Macarius there to visit these women, and he saw that their mode of life was one of service, where they were serving one another, serving the children of each other, serving their husbands. Like, everything that they were doing was a life of sacrifice, and that God saw that these two women were actually more holy than all of, than, than all of these monks and, and St. Macarius himself. So it's not to say that someone who is a monastic is necessarily holier than anyone who is married. Both paths are paths of salvation. God calls some people to a path of monasticism where, where kind of their desire is to be in solitude, away from the world, praying for the world, living a life of asceticism. Other people, they have a desire to be married. But even those who are married are still called to holiness, are still called to live a righteous life, are still called to um, be in the church and serve and, and so on. Asceticism is not a goal in and of itself that believers desire to attain but it is a practical response to the divine love of god and to gain self-control so asceticism is not something that we do just to be ascetic or to say that the one who is the most ascetic is somehow the most holy no asceticism is a way of self-control is that is it, it is a way for us to not be distracted by the desires of life so that we can approach god and have a stronger deeper relationship with god this is why we fast, for instance, or we do prostrations. We do these things because in the hope that as we deny our flesh, our spirit grows closer and closer to God. This is the purpose of asceticism. Asceticism of itself is of no value apart from this. This is why we practice it. The ascetic life doesn't mean an enmity to the body, its senses and energies, but rather it looks upon the body and sanctity as a sacred temple. So asceticism is also not like a destruction of the body. It is not that we hate the body and we are trying to destroy it or deny it uh, out of hatred. But we are denying it because we want our spirit, we have to pay attention to the spirit rather than to pay attention to the body. Monasticism is not isolation from men, but fellowship with God. The desire is fellowship with God, not just to be away from the world, but to be away from the world so that we can grow closer to God. 
So the beginning of monasticism. All forms of monasticism began in Egypt and famously with um, St. Anthony the Great, who we consider to be the father of monks, the one who first established the form of, of monasticism that became popular and attracted many, many people to monasticism. Undoubtedly, the various monastic forms did not start by previous church plan, but through instinct love that flamed the hearts of many early cops. It wasn't a decision. It's not like the church got together and said, we need to create a way for people to go into the desert and to live kind of um, for God, and it was like uh, by design. It was not by design. It happened actually in the story of St. Anthony, where he, as a regular man, went into the church and he heard the readings about um, that Christ said to the rich young ruler, which is that he should sell all that he has to deny himself and to take up his cross and to follow him. And he took this as a very personal message to him. He took it as God is speaking to him directly and telling him, give up all you have for me. And so St. Anthony, moved by this, he decided to do this. He decided to take all of his inheritance that he had had from his parents to give it away. He took his sister and he put her like in a kind of this also like a communal house for, for virgins. And he went himself and began to live in the desert. And he lived in, uh, in, in a fortress and he lived, he lived in, in places where he was severely tempted by demons. And over many years, having kind of learned by experience this life, he attracted many people to him. To the point where St. Anthony wanted to continue to live in isolation, but the people came to him and forced him, forced him to come out so that they could take his blessing and they could benefit from him because he had gained such a reputation for his form of life. And this was the beginning of monasticism. It was based on the actions of a few people that they did out of love and a desire to be with God, not by some kind of ecclesiastical decision that we should create such a form of life for people to live. Practicing asceticism appeared in Egypt at the end of the first century, aiming to flourish the spiritual needs above the bodily desires. Some felt not only the need to live in virginity without family responsibilities, but also the need for a spiritual atmosphere. So it's not just about, I'm going to choose to live celibate, but in the world, but no, these, these are people who chose to be celibate, celibate and to live in the wilderness. Men preferred to leave the cities and to live in simple huts in villages or in tombs outside the cities and villages, whether as individuals or groups. Women lived together in a house to assist one another spiritually, but without a spiritual program. These were called devotees. The church refers to them as the virgins, like the rank of the virgins. Some Coptic men escaped to the deserts to live in solitude. We know only a small number of them, such as St. Paul, the first hermit who lived in the desert more than 90 years. St. Paul, one of the famous um, of the hermits, the hermits, again, this, the word hermit is coming from the word eremitical, like we say the eremitical life. It's like the word hermit. So these are the people who go and live complete isolation away from everyone, um, being supported only by God. Monasticism was established during the latter part of the third century and flourished in the fourth century under the example of St. Anthony, as I mentioned his story. And he started his life of solitude in a tomb and then in a mountain cave in the wilderness for 20 years, where the first monastic community started in the eastern wilderness. 
Antonian monasticism, which is according to the pattern of St. Anthony, or communal order, a group of monks living in solitude under the guidance of a spiritual father, sharing liturgy and praises. So some of the forms of monasticism were they would be living in isolation, each monk, but in close proximity to one another. So each one would live alone, but they would be living close by to the other monks or to their spiritual father, and they would go and meet with one another. They would go speak with their spiritual father, or they would pray liturgy together, and then they would go back to their individual um, dwellings. St. Anthony was known as the father of all monks uh, for many reasons. Many were attracted to his example after 20 years of complete isolation to form the first monastic group. His disciples became leaders of monasticism. So all those who learned from him the monastic principles then went on and became leaders themselves and attracted even more people to the monastic life. European monasticism appeared because of St. Athanasius's book about St. Anthony's life. So when, when St. Athanasius wrote the story, kind of the biography of St. Anthony, it inspired many others to live also according to the same pattern of monasticism, even in Europe and in other places. He also was an active member of the church during persecution and heresies. There were three main communities, monastic communities, in the western desert. There was one that we hear about awesome, often called Skidis. It's also called Shihit. So again, when you're reading in the Synexarian, and it mentions that there are certain saints who lived in the desert of Skidis or the desert of Shihit, this is the area. This was a region that was um, directed by St. Macarius, initially. There was an, an area called Nitria or Natrun, Wedil Natrun. This is another area um, uh, under St. Amun around the cell of St. Macarius in 330 AD. And there's a third area called Celia or Kelia, which is under St. Amun in 338 AD. These communities were of great value and have an important influence in the church history because this area was blessed by the Holy Family. If you remember when we spoke about the entrance of the Holy Family to Egypt and the path that they traveled in Egypt, many of the sites and many of the important um, places that they visited ended up becoming monastic communities in the future. Um, nearness to the capital of Alexandria, where the Pope resided, which attracted both Egyptians and foreigners. So these areas were close to Alexandria, so there was easy access to the city um, there where the Pope dwelt. Its monks had a role in the religious events in Alexandria, like theological discussions. So whenever there was councils or theological debates, the monks who lived not far away had easy access to the city so they could participate in these discussions. Um, the, the, the monasteries became shelters for the popes during time of persecution. And this also is the places where the Holy Myrun oil was made. The holy Myrun oil is the oil that is used for consecration, it's used for confirmation, it's used for the coming of the Holy Spirit in various prayers in the church. It's something that was made even from the very early days of the church, made in the monasteries here. So that was like the northern part of Egypt, the monastic areas there. So there's also the, the monasteries in Upper Egypt, which is the southern part of Egypt, here are some of the names. I'm not going to read them all, but some of the, the, the regions there. And here is a map that you can kind of see. Um, so the northern part of Egypt, you can see there Nitria, Celia, Skidis, there on the top left. You can see that where um, nearby Alexandria. And some of these areas have famous monasteries that people, as they're driving from um, Cairo uh, to Alexandria, would, would stop by. 
um, even to today. So you see the city Memphis? That Memphis is what is modern-day Cairo. So as you're driving from Memphis or Cairo to Alexandria, you pass by that region, and there are many monasteries there to be visited. Okay, And then in the southern uh, or upper part of Egypt, you see there's uh, these additional regions which also had many monasteries. The Cenobitic form of monasticism that I mentioned is different from the Eremitic, right? The Eremitic was the hermit form where people would go out in isolation, individuals by themselves. The Cenobitic form is where people would live in monastic communities, which is closer to what we typically see today in the monasteries. St. Bachomius established the Cenobitic system because the Eremitic order was not fit for everyone. There are many people who wanted kind of a monastic lifestyle, but they were not able to go and to live in complete isolation. So the Cenobitic form was, was a way where they were still able to live away from the world and to worship God this way, but they, did not, they, they had support. They had other people with them. He established the first monastery and established various monastic constitutions or rules under the guidance of an abbot or abbess. So each monastery would have a leader, which was the abbot for men or an abbess for the nunneries, for the women. And that person would, would like help to guide and to lead the monks or nuns in that area. Soon more than 100 monks lived at his monastery, the monastery of St. Bachomius, and he built six or seven more monasteries and a nunnery. By the time of his death in 345 AD, there were 3,000 monks in the Bohemian monasteries. In 420, this number grew to 7,000 and then grew out of Egypt into Palestine and the Judea uh, desert, Syria, North Africa, and eventually Western Europe. Sadly, many, many of the monasteries that existed at the time were later closed or destroyed um, after the Islamic invasion. Um, we'll talk more about that when we get to the Islamic invasion. Monks combined manual labor with unceasing prayer, both day and night, according to the rules. He wrote his rules in Coptic, then translated to Greek by Palladius for the benefit of the foreign monks. St. Jerome, a hermit from Bethlehem, translated it from Greek to Latin in 404 AD. St. Basil visited the Bohemian monasteries, and he was profoundly impressed by what he saw. Both St. Basil and St. Benedict drew from the Bohemian rules in setting forth their own ones. So St. Benedict, for instance, he is one of the very famous Catholic saints that set forth the rules of monasticism in the Catholic Church, and he based those rules based on the rules of St. Bohemius. There are other forms that were like blending of the two styles together, um, which were also influenced by other famous figures like St. Schnuda the Archimandrite and St. Macarius um, that also kind of made modifications to these forms. There was also a women monastic movement, which started early in the church, um, and, 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 and had different stages. In the first stage, they, they were women who were living an ascetic life at home. An example of this is the four daughters, um, the four virgin daughters of, of, of St. Philip in the book of Acts. Then it moved to um, there being special houses called houses for virgins under the supervision of the church. And an example of this is like what I mentioned about St. Anthony. When he chose to go into the wilderness, he, he put his, his daughter into um, a house specifically for the virgins. Um, so that became uh, uh, the second stage of the women's monastic movement. And then the third stage is they would have nunneries, which are like con uh, convents um, and uh, like monasteries for women. 
Okay, um, so very, very similar, if not identical, to the men's monastic movement at that point. It kind of grew into that through um, various stages. The first monastic women's community in the world was founded in Alexandria by Saint Synclatica, whose biography and teachings were preserved by Pope Athanasius. Saint Bohemius was the first to establish a nunnery in Upper Egypt for his sister that housed 400 nuns. Many foreign abbesses came to Egypt, like St. Melania the Great and her granddaughter also, her, her name is Melania. Many abbesses were endowed with the grace of the true leadership and spiritual discernment, like Mother Sarah, who lived in Pelusium, and her sayings were treasured by the Desert Fathers. I think this is a good stopping point. Um, there, there's we can continue next time. Does anyone have any comments or questions um, about monasticism in the church? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for allowing us to come to the church and to worship your holy name. We ask, O God, that you grant us a desire to serve you and to fill us, O Lord, with a passion for your service and a passion for your worship. We ask you, O God, to forgive us our sins and to lead us always closer and closer to you and to teach us the benefits of the asceticism that we have learned, O Lord, from our fathers and mothers, those who came before us and those who choose to set out away from the world and to live a life that is completely consecrated to your service. We ask, O God, that you place in our hearts a desire to be ascetic like them and to give away, O Lord, the things that are preventing us from drawing closer to you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the communion of the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.